It's a joy to welcome those of you who are now joining us live uh, on the web, or maybe you're tuning in later in the week catching the archived version of this. It's always good to have you be a part of worship at Freedom. What we celebrate and remember today is the moment, the day that kicked off what clearly, without a doubt, is the one week which has defined and reshaped all of human history more than any other week that you could ever point to. There, there is no moment in time that all of history turns on like that one week, that first Holy Week in Jerusalem. And today we remember the beginning of that, when Jesus knowingly and with great intentionality marched into what lay before him. He had known far in advance. He had set his face for Jerusalem six months prior and for six months had been telling his disciples what was coming. But it was on this day that he did the unthinkable with his disciples squirming and grumbling and mumbling about how this is crazy. They don't need to do this. People are going to die if they go here. And Jesus marches into Jerusalem. If you've got your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 12. We're going to start by taking a look at the shorter version, the shorter account of Jesus' arrival in the city. As we look at a message today entitled, When Jesus Comes to Town, I realize that um, for some listening today, this is familiar material, very familiar stuff. But for some here today, some who are watching and listening online... If you could be completely honest about where you are in life and about where your thoughts are, you'd probably have to say that there are some major questions that remain. That you have some major questions about this Jesus, about how real he is, how much he really looks like and and does the things that we hear talked about in church. Is he the real deal and what difference would it make if this Jesus that church people talk about all the time if he is real, what, what difference would it make if he were in your life? And I will just tell you that the heart of the message today really is about that. This Jesus that we talk about so often, who maybe seems very far off and distant to you because it's been 2,000 years since he walked on the earth. That's a long time ago, and he lived a far piece away. But what would happen in your life if Jesus came to town? What would happen if in your world... Jesus showed up, not just sort of in general, but for you specifically. What would that look like? What difference would it make if Jesus came to town? That's what we're considering today as we read in John 12, beginning in verse 12 of chapter 12. John says, the next day, <clears throat> the great crowd that had come from come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. Remember, this is the week of the Passover feast, and so thousands upon thousands of people flocked to Jerusalem to be in the holy city for, for this very special uh, religious celebration. And uh, They took palm branches and they went out to meet Jesus, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. It was only after Jesus was glorified that they did realize that these things had been written about him and that that they had done these things to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word because this had just happened in recent days. Many people, because they heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. So you you see how these are tied together. It was just 
just such a stone's throw distance away that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. Everybody knew about this. He had been dead for days. The unthinkable has happened, and you can't deny it because he's walking around in their midst. And so the people have heard the man who has the power to raise the dead is coming into town. They've all come to meet him. Verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look now, the whole world has gone after him. When we try and begin to capture in our minds some sense of what this would have been like, Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem amid all of this stir, excitement, and turmoil, all of the conflict and tension that's there, it's really, really hard to to think in our time about anything that would have looked like this. As I was pondering this this week, it occurred to me probably the closest thing that we could think of in American history in the last century actually happened not so terribly far from us 50 years ago. We've all heard a lot in the last month about Selma. And honestly, if you're a native of the state of Alabama, if we're real honest, for most of us, Selma is, a, is the name of a city that we like to block out. Because many of the events in Selma are such a black part of our history that it's just kind of like, could we not talk about that anymore? Anybody ever feel that way? I mean, there are things in our lives that we feel that way about. Like, do we have to rehearse that? You know, it, there's, a, there's a part of, of us that collectively cringes because we know such terrible things had been going on, not just in Selma, but but in the South and in the U.S. But all of that crystallized as focus turned to one place in the state of Alabama in March of 1965. The civil rights movement was uh, well underway. And at on that first Sunday in March in 1965... As a, a group of African Americans and, and others who supported them and stood with them, marched, they attempted to march from Selma to Montgomery on that first Sunday of March that became known as Bloody Sunday. Because as they, they marched toward Montgomery asking for equal rights for all races, equal voting rights, they were, of course, met with terrible opposition from state and local law enforcement and, and terrible things happened and many people were injured and you know thus the, the title Bloody Sunday. There were two attempts at marches in the early uh, weeks of March 1965 and it just was such a, a horrible mess and there was so much tension uh, at the time that suddenly the attention of the entire nation, though, though there were many places of unrest, the attention of the whole nation focused on Selma and what was happening there as there was another march planned for later in the month of March. And people began to flock to Selma. People who wanted to take part in this march, people who wanted to see those who were oppressed finally set free, finally able to experience the rights that all other American citizens enjoy. But at the same time, there were many who opposed this, who were flocking to the same city. And so with every passing day, it was as if somebody were just turning up the thermostat. The tension was getting worse and worse. And then one figure arrived on the scene who was, in many ways, the most polarizing figure in the whole situation. And you know who that was, Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., he was the one who was truly the embodiment of the hope of all of those who were taking part in the civil rights movement. Those who believed that there could be a better way for America to behave and, and for Americans to treat each other. They saw in Dr. King the hope of change. 
And for those who opposed this movement and who wanted to maintain the status quo, he was the symbol of everything that they hated and stood against. And his arrival in Selma, in its own small way, all of the tension, all of the differences of opinion, the the sense of this is about to get bloody, this is about to get ugly, we don't like this, we don't like this guy coming to town, while others are saying, no, we're glad that he's here. We think that his arrival may actually finally bring justice to our cause. Can you begin to feel the tension in Selma 50 years ago this month? Can you imagine the incredible tension when for the third time that month, thousands of African Americans and others who supported them began that 47 mile trek, that four day journey uh, toward Montgomery, wondering if those who had beaten the stew out of them two weeks earlier would do more of the same. But this time they had somebody else in their company, somebody that they thought with his presence and the attention that he brought might change the day, might allow for a different outcome. And it did. And that became a historic moment that really does define a shift in, in American policy toward the voting rights of African-Americans and, and other races. It, it wound up in a really ugly situation, becoming wonderful good that came out of that. Well, that is only a pale shadow of the reality of what took place in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. But you have some sense of that same type of tension that you have different groups of people in Jerusalem who are watching Jesus come into town. There are plenty, there are thousands who have heard the good news. They have heard what this religious teacher have done, has done in the past, and, and they have heard that this may be the guy. He may be the one who can bring about change for us because we live as an oppressed people. We want to be free, and we have heard that this guy, Jesus, he might just be the one. So it's easy to understand that in this crowd... There really are some different perspectives, some different expectations. I want to just point out to you at least three different mindsets as Jesus comes into town amid all of these shouts and all of this ruckus. That first of all, there was the crowd's uh, mindset in this thing, which was basically, hey, what's in this for me? I'll show up. And I'll shout, and I may throw my coat on the ground, or I may lay some palm branches, I may just applaud, but I'll say, Woo, go Jesus, Hosanna to the Son of David, but I, I'm here because of one thing, I want something in return. They showed up and shouted for Jesus mostly because they believed that Jesus might be the one that's going to come into town and run out the Romans and finally let them be free from oppression and heavy taxation, and that would be great, wouldn't it? But you can see how fickle the crowd was because that was on Sunday. And by Friday, Friday of the same week, the crowd that had said, Hosanna to the son of David, Hosanna to the king of Israel, praise to you. That same crowd, when Pilate comes out on Friday morning and says, well, you know what my custom is. It's Passover, and so at the Passover, it's always my deal that I'm willing to release one criminal to you. I'll give him a full pardon. You sort of get to to help me pick. And so today, I'm giving you the choice. Here's Barabbas, and you know all the crimes that he's committed. You know what a scoundrel he is. And here's Jesus, the religious criminal. He, He hasn't really done anything wrong. He's just in here because of some religious things that he's done. So you tell me, which one do you want? You want me to turn Barabbas loose? No, no. And to the crowd, he says, how about Jesus? You want me to set Jesus free? And they shout back, no, crucify him. 
crucify him. Which means literally torture him and slowly murder him. You see the crowd in, in a moment of time is willing to go, Woohoo, go Jesus. I hope you're bringing something for me. I hope you got something in your pocket for me. And the moment that he doesn't do what they expect, they're, they're saying, done with him. Get him off the stage. There are those who, when they think of Jesus, they think of him in a positive light, but they think like consumers. What's Jesus going to do for me? How's he going to make my life better? What will I get if I pray, if I go to church, if I commit something or give something to him? There's a second group of people, and they had a very different perspective, and that was the religious leaders, and we know what their perspective was. Uh, they were thinking, hey, we're in control and we don't plan to lose control. We have got to, to keep control in this situation. At the uh, conclusion of what John has recorded there in chapter 12, verse 19, the Pharisees, and they, they were some of the, the ruling class of the religious crowd, they said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Boy, this is just driving them bonkers because they have been the voices that everyone had to listen to and suddenly people are paying more attention to Jesus and they are squirming at this, can't stand it. They hate the thought that they might lose control. Now, there's a different perspective for you. When you think about, you know, who of these three groups do you most identify with? Some of us could identify with the crowd that says, hey, what's in it for me? But there are some who are here or who are listening today. And you could identify more closely with the religious leaders who just said, hey, Jesus, Jesus, I just don't want to lose control. That's the thing that concerns me. I, we've heard about this Jesus. He's some kind of king. He's some kind of Lord. He, he's a control freak. He wants to be in charge. And I don't want to give up control. I like my life. I like my life on my terms. And I don't want to relinquish control. There's a third group. And that is those who are right there with Jesus. His apostles and closest friends. Those who are marching in with him. And the way that we might sum up their perspective is very simply, just don't do it this way. Jesus, we support you, we believe in you, we're all about whatever it is that, that you're about. But this stuff you've been telling us for the last six months, we don't like that. And we're not crazy about coming into Jerusalem. If we had time to back up and read what John chapter 11 records, when they were preparing to come into Jerusalem, man, the disciples are freaked out. They do not want to go there. And the reason for that is very simple. Tensions are so high, there's been more than one attempt on Jesus' life. And, I mean, they're saying, some of us are going to die if we go into this city. And Jesus has added fuel to that fire because starting six months earlier, when they've gone away to Caesarea Philippi, Jesus begins at that moment to no longer speak in veiled terms. He tells his disciples what's going to happen. In Matthew 16, 21 and following, it says, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he had to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and legal experts. And that he had to be killed and raised on the third day. So then Peter took hold of Jesus and scolding him began to correct him. God forbid, Lord, this won't happen to you. And that really was the, the tension now between Jesus and the disciples over a span of six months. They're all thinking, that this is crazy talk. We don't understand what it is that you're planning to do. But if you've come to set us free, you getting butchered at the hands of, of the Jewish leaders... That's not going to accomplish anything. So whatever it is that you're planning to do, Jesus, you forget your plan and let's find another way. 
You know, it's interesting to me when I look at those three perspectives and I look at my own life, I see in different seasons me and my thinking in every one of these different groups of people. Do you? I mean, I look at that and I think there have been times when how I think about Jesus and about me having a relationship with him, it really more than anything has been about, but what am I going to get out of this? Are you going to bless me? Are you going to take care of me financially? Are you going to make sure that my family doesn't suffer? Are you going to make sure that the things that I want are the things that I get? Because if I'm going to follow you, Jesus, I want all of those blessings. What do I get out of it? I confess to you that that there have been too many times in my life when the control freak in me wanted to take over. And the whole idea of Jesus getting to call all of the shots and being in control weirded me out. I felt more like the religious leaders in this. And way too many times I can identify with the disciples. With a maturing faith where I would say, Jesus, I, I want what you want. I want what you desire for me. But then when I watch his plan beginning to unfold... There are so many times that I'm going, but I don't want to do it that way. I mean, there's got to be an easier way to get to where we need to get to. Isn't there? Do any of you ever feel like this? You ever just feel like, God, you're going about this the hard way. Disciples felt that way. Well, those were three different responses to Jesus coming to town that we see in the crowd. Now we want to make this thing more personal and just ask the question, what happens today? What happens in my life and in my family, your life and in your home when Jesus shows up? When Jesus comes marching in, not on a donkey, but in very real ways, when Jesus invades your situation. What I'm going to share is very simple, just three truths that I want you to to consider today as you think about Jesus coming in and being in the middle of your life and your situation. The first thing that will happen when Jesus enters your situation is Jesus causes a much-needed disruption to the norm. Somebody say disruption. Oh, don't you know he causes a major disruption to what the norm is? In Mark chapter 21, Mark gives, excuse me, Matthew 21, Matthew gives us some extra details about what happens when Jesus comes to town. John gives us the really short version. The people are cheering and the Pharisees are squirming. But Matthew tells us that when Jesus comes to town, that within 24 hours of him getting there, he goes to the temple. Now, remember, the temple's a little bitty place. It's a, it, as far as square footage, it's a tiny building. You don't go into the temple. You go to the temple courtyards, these huge concentric courtyards around the the temple. And this is where all of the religious activity and so much of the business of the day, just very, very busy place every day. And Jesus goes into that situation and he turns it upside down. Matthew tells us in chapter 21 that when Jesus entered the temple area that he drove out all who were buying and selling there. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. Now... We know that in the temple courtyard area that, that there was, it was really set up, it wasn't supposed to be this way, but they had set it up like a gigantic marketplace where you would buy all the different animals that were used for sacrifices. Now, on the surface of that, it sounds like, well, you know, that's, that's kind of normal. You would sort of expect that to develop if you're going to the temple to offer sacrifices and all these people who are traveling in from foreign cities and foreign countries that it would be convenient for them. They don't have to bring their animals and they could just buy them there. That's not what this was about. If I could oversimplify what's going on there, what's happening is it is a 
a windfall. It's a, a financial windfall for the religious leadership because they have set up a system that is designed to make them filthy rich. And Jesus is about to mess that up. Caiaphas, the high priest, and all of those who were aligned around him had figured out how they could exploit their power in a way that would make them ridiculously wealthy. And the way that they did that was they instructed the priests, you do not accept any sacrifice except those that have been purchased in the temple court area. So we're going to have a, a checkpoint in this where people, when they try and bring in some kind of goat or a lamb or a ram or a dove from the outside, it's going to be, if I could oversimplify this, it's going to be sort of like when you go to the movies and you try and bring in your own snack and your own drink. It gets confiscated at the door, right? Why? So you can pay five seventy-five for thirty-five cents worth of Coca-Cola, right? You you can't bring any kind of food or drink into the movie theater. Why? Because they want to sell you the same thing you tried to bring in for five times what it would have cost you to get it at the Shell station across the street. Because they get to make a fortune doing that. Well, it was a gigantic version of that that was going on in Jerusalem. But they weren't selling Coca-Colas and popcorn. They were forcing the people who were bringing sacrifices to buy their animals at an inflated rate. And they were getting rich doing that. You want to know why Jesus got murdered the particular week that he did? I mean, yes, it was God's plan. Yes, it was all by God's design. But in terms of from a flesh and blood perspective, you want to know the number one reason that Jesus got murdered that week? Because he came in and he messed with the financial, the corrupt financial system. You want to get killed today? Go to a big city and try and go in and undo the corruption of the mob. The moment that you try and mess with their flow of money is the moment somebody's going to put a hit out on you. Still today. And that's what happened in Jesus' day. He messed with the flow of money. Now they had been talking about killing Jesus for years. They're going to kill him this week. Because on this week, Jesus came to town understanding all of the tension, understanding all of the risk, everything that was at stake. And Jesus is saying, you know what? I'm not going to sneak in as the disciples would have preferred. In John 7, at an earlier point when it wasn't time for him to die, he did sneak into town. But this time, he came in loud and proud. And it's as if he's going, hey, Pharisees, hey, religious leaders, in case I don't have your undivided attention, watch what I'm about to do. And he marches in the temple courtyard and he doesn't preach against what's going on. The scripture says he plats a whip. Boy, that's a side of Jesus that doesn't sound very meek and mild, does it? He goes in. He frightens people. He is like the Hulk on the loose as he's turning things over and, and just making a gigantic disruption that everybody's going to have to respond to one way or another. Well, that's sort of the big scale version of that. But Jesus, on some smaller scale, will create a similar disruption in your life or in mine when he shows up. He is not going to leave things just simply as they are when he comes to town. When he comes into your life. I mean, think back three and a half years earlier when Jesus had come to town and he, he had been living in Israel for all of his life for 30 years. But when Jesus went out and began to do ministry and he began to interact with some men that he was going to invite to spend time with him, he had spent a little bit of time with them, uh, at least a day or two prior. And then in, in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus shows up on the banks of the shore of 
uh, on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and he calls out first to, to Matthew, I mean, excuse me, to, uh, to Peter and Andrew, and then to James and John, two sets of brothers who are fishermen, kind of side by side. And he makes the same sort of call to each of them. He's gotten to know them well enough to know that they fish for a living, and they're going to spend their whole lives fishing. And Jesus shows up, and he totally disrupts that, their future, their livelihood, by saying, Hey, I want you to come follow me. And I'm going to let you fish, but I'm going to teach you how to fish for men. I'm about to make a radical change in how you live the rest of your life. And I'm just telling you, this is sort of good news and bad news all rolled into one. When Jesus comes into your life, into your situation, he is not just going to leave it alone and say, Well, whatever you want to do, you just as long as you say a little prayer with that and ask me to bless what you were going to do, we'll all be good with that. That is not the Jesus of Scripture. You see, Jesus is the one who takes the initiative. Jesus is the one who sets the agenda. Jesus is the one who interrupts what we already had planned and who says, no, we're going to do it this way. Jesus provides a wonderful, much-needed disruption and interruption to the norm. The next thing he'll do, though, is in doing that, over time, he's also going to give you and me a new and different perspective. And boy, do we need that. Because in the middle of life, all of its chaos, and in the middle of what Jesus comes in and tries to do, initially, it looks usually very disturbing, unsettling, and scary. I mean, sometimes it's unsettling because it feels like he's put us out on a limb and then he's walked away. You ever feel like that? Jesus seems to orchestrate a situation that's going to require a lot of faith. And then you look around and it just seems like there's no Jesus around for all that you can see. It just seems like it's a high risk, very painful situation and you can't see what Jesus is going to do. What do you need? You need a different perspective. You need to be able to see what he can see in that first Palm Sunday, uh, first Holy Week. The disciples desperately needed a different perspective, didn't they? It says in verse 16 of John 12, His disciples did not understand at the time that this was a fulfillment of prophecy. After Jesus went into His glory, they remembered what had happened and they realized that these things had been written about Him. But you get what the point is. They had no idea. Had no clue what was going on. It feels like when you're in the middle of God's will, many times, that you are just living in the middle of a chaotic play that is being written one page at a time while you're in the middle of it. You know what I mean? So many times when you're in the middle of God's will, it doesn't feel like, oh man, yeah, this is a wonderful story. And right now I'm just in act one or act two, but it's a five act story, five act play. And God's got it all mapped out and the ending is going to be so good. There's going to be so much good stuff in between. And I can't wait for that. It doesn't feel like that when you're in the middle of it. So many times when you're in the middle of God's will, it's like, holy cow, I don't know what the next page holds, but it feels like it hasn't even been written yet. I don't know what's coming. I don't know that God knows what's coming. Many times when you're in the middle of God's will, it doesn't feel cozy and spiritual. It didn't for the disciples. Wouldn't you agree with that? I mean, what, what John, who is one of those 12 followers, goes back and says is, we had no idea we were living in the fulfillment of prophecy. But read between the lines there, you know, what we felt like is we were living in chaos. We were scared that Jesus had lost his mind. We were scared that Jesus had made a serious misjudgment here. We just couldn't see from his perspective what was going on. I know in my own life, some of the most significant things that God has ever done 
when I was going through them, they felt like the worst of the worst. I mean, I'll just give you two big for instances. 16 years ago, I was really in the middle of of wrestling with the whole thing of, boy, was God calling me to be a church planter? I was in student ministry, knew I had a sense of call to be a pastor, but boy, a year or two earlier, God had begun to stir in my heart this thing about church planting. And so I had spent just so much time praying and fasting and wrestling with this and felt like I was hearing God clearly on this thing about planting. I was now living on the eastern shore and just feeling so clearly God was saying to plant a church here on the eastern shore. And while all that's going on, I'm still serving on staff in a church. And lo and behold, just like a bomb has gone off, the church that I'm serving splits. And I'm not a part of any side in that. I just happen to be on staff when it splits. And it was absolute chaos, particularly for those of us on the inside. One of the most painful things I've ever been through in my life, if you've never been through a church split, it's awful. It's like a gigantic divorce. And there's all this misinformation and miscommunication that's going on. And the long and short of that is the net result for me as a member of that staff who felt like, boy, God is preparing me to plant a new church. We, we watch as 300 people in a span of three weeks leave the church to go start a new church. And I'm not saying anything in judgment about those people or that movement. I'm just speaking from the perspective of somebody who was left behind. It felt awful. And I don't know how it felt for the 300 that left, but I know where I stayed, it felt like a lynch mob mentality. People felt betrayed. People felt lied to. People were angry. And the one thing you better not talk about at that point is wanting to go out and start another new church. And I'm like, wow, God, one of us missed something badly. I mean, that that is exactly how I felt. It's like either you or I missed something real bad in this thing. Because you and I have been talking about this in depth for a couple of years here. And I don't know if you noticed or not, but there is no place in America that would be a worse place to plant a church right now than in Fairhope and on the eastern shore. Because if you have not noticed, there's been a lot of deception. There's been a lot of junk that has gone on. A lot of talk about possibly planting a church. And then in the middle of the discussion, there's a church split. God, if I even bring up planting a church, they're going to look for a big limb on a stout tree and a good rope. They don't want any part of planting a church. Now, I would be open to transferring from here, like to the dark side of the moon or something sounds pretty good is how I felt right then. And for the next several months, boy, I am just praying and feeling like every time I pray, I stepped into about three feet of mud, just struggling to move forward. I I know God hasn't abandoned me, but I'm like, God, nothing about this makes any sense. About nine months past that moment, praying, 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 and not feeling like I'm really hearing much back from God. Isn't that the miserable part in this, by the way? When you're in the thick mud, the hard stuff, and suddenly the voice of God gets really quiet. What's up with that? You start feeling like, am I just out of the will of God? I don't, I don't know where I got off course, but this is weird. This is not fun. And about nine months into praying, just that still soft voice of the Spirit said to me, you didn't hear me wrong. You didn't misunderstand anything. I called you to plant a new church. At which point I'm like, say again? He's just saying very clearly, nothing about my call has changed. 
And I'm thinking, you don't understand. Everything has changed. And the Spirit so clearly impressed on my heart. Nothing that mattered has changed. You're available. And I'm here. And my call is for here and now. Now, you assumed, I never said, God speaking here, you assumed that you would have a team to go with you and a supporting church and money and a building and all these resources. You just assumed that that was part of the package. I never told you that. You just assumed you'd get that. You see, my plan never changed because all you ever needed was me. Now, here's the time frame. And finally, I mean, literally... About six months in advance of launch day, he said, here's the date. Now get busy. There's a part of me that's going, are you kidding? And there's a part of me that is just excited out of my mind because I'd just been dying to hear God say anything. I mean, he could have said boo and I would have been glad. You know, after nine months of waiting, we start out not knowing what's going to happen. And most of you know kind of the rest of that story. We launched with hardly anybody there. In August of 2000, and God just blessed the socks off of that. And that work continues to grow. The thing that's interesting is how God, when He shows up, when Jesus shows up, over time, not only does He make things happen, but He changes your perspective. Because I'll tell you, even after we launched, and that was exciting, and it was fun and gross all at the same time, but as we're moving forward, I'm just telling you honestly, I'm still looking out of the corner of my eye at this other church and these people that I love and wish that I was in church with. Now I'm being really honest. Wish they were coming to my church. Wish they'd come with me instead of going over there. And after some time had passed, the Lord just whispered something very private to me. All he said was, I'm giving you an opportunity to watch and see What the flesh can do when it plants a church and what the spirit can do when he plants a church. So you just watch. And that is in no way an attack on anybody else. Time has passed. And one of those churches has grown and has disappeared. And the church that started with nothing but the call of God and the presence of Jesus continues to grow and continues to reach people. That wasn't because of me. But I share that story with you to say, from that moment forward, my perspective changed. And I actually, I'll I'll confess, from that point forward, not only did I have a sense of excitement about it really is okay that it worked out the way that it did, but my heart was heavy for the sister church from that point forward because I realized this is not going to be good for them. This is not going to have a good outcome. You know, I don't have to think back 15 or 16 years ago to think about how God takes dark seasons and he rearranges pieces and does things that at the time don't feel good at all. When I was going through the misery of, of a terrible situation, a home that finally ended up in divorce and through all of that, I'm just being honest, you know, I'm just thinking, oh, God, don't don't let this mean that I also lose the opportunity to serve you in this church that, you know, you, you started and you called me to this and it wasn't easy. And it's been such a, a wonderful ride, but it's been such a, a, a exhausting 
difficult journey as well. And don't tell me that I've got to walk away from that, too. And God made that very clear that, yes, that was a part of the deal, that I would have to to walk away from a church that I had had the opportunity to plant and other campuses be planted out of that, the Hope Center be planted out of that. And I, I loved all that. And it just felt like, on top of everything else that had ripped my heart apart, it just felt like that was insult added to injury. Salt poured in the wound to have to walk away from that church. And at the time, it just felt like nothing but grief and loss. But it's so amazing how in the passing of time over the next year, God came back and it just was almost like a replay of 15 years earlier or however many years earlier. God just saying, hey, in case you forgot, that call that I placed on your life to serve me and that I clarified is part of that call is to be a church planter. Uh, It never went away. I didn't revoke that because the church went through a split. And I didn't revoke that because your marriage ended. My call is irrevocable. And uh, it's time to get busy again. It's time to get busy planting again. And at the time, part of me is glad and part of me is just going, are you kidding? My tank is not on empty. I am below empty. I am empty with somebody poking holes in the bottom of the tank. It is that empty. And the Spirit just so clearly going, nope, it's time. It's time now. You know, you you felt like there was nothing however many years ago, and yet we were able to do exactly what I intended to do. It's time again. And I had no earthly idea how planting again, when the tank was empty and worse than empty, it felt like, how much God would just breathe life and joy back into me and how much perspective would change in a span of just a few months when I'm just, I'm excited and shaking my head all the time going, God, I just don't, I don't think I can do this. And God's going, <laughs> and I don't know when you thought I ever needed you to do this. <laughs> I've always had this. You're just getting to participate in what I'm doing. And with the passing of just a little bit of time, my perspective changed and God showed me and said, all along, I stirred up and, and planted in you gifts for planting, not just for being a pastor You'd gotten so comfortable where you were, you weren't ever going to plant again. You were just going to sit there and enjoy, look how big and fat we've become. This is nice. And I realized, God, you're exactly right. I wasn't going anywhere. And I'm not at all blaming God for me having gone through a divorce. That's not the case at all. But what I will say is, from God's perspective, he was doing a good thing when he dislodged me from a comfortable place that I would have stayed at for the next 50 years. Because he said, I've got different things planned. I've got better things planned. And I had no idea how much more joy I would find doing the will of God in a place that I never would have picked to go had I been left where I was. God's going to disrupt the norm. And he's going to change your perspective over time. Now, two things I can tell you about getting a change in perspective. One is that the more time that you will spend with Jesus, the easier that it will be to take on his perspective. It's going to take time... And it's going to take you pressing into him to begin to appreciate over some time what he's doing. But I'll tell you this, when you're in the middle of the big stuff where God is disrupting, you're usually going to see the will of God and God's perspective much more clearly in the rearview mirror than you will out the windshield. How many of you know that's right? 
Way too much of the time, I'm not sure it's God's will when I'm looking ahead out the windshield, but I'm real good at looking in the rearview mirror and going, well, I'll be. That was the will of God. <laughs> Which is what John is admitting. He's saying, well, when we were looking out the, the windshield of the car marching into Jerusalem, we didn't have any idea what the will of God was. But, you know, we got on past the resurrection and we looked in the rearview mirror. And went, that was exactly the will of God. Just as prophesied, life is like that. Well, the longer that you press into Jesus, that will help a whole lot in gaining fresh perspective. But the other thing that I'll say is this. Perspectives have got to be shaped by faith rather than feelings. You know, in counseling, they teach you make your decisions based on facts rather than feelings. No extra charge for that, but that is an important truth. Learn to operate by facts over feelings. Well, I'll take it a step further and say, if you will choose to operate and think based on faith, more than your feelings, you'll stay in a much better place. Because there are a bunch of times where you're going to feel like this ain't going to work out. The enemy's going to win. This is going to crash and burn. There's no good outcome that's possible. There are going to be a lot of times when you may feel like God doesn't care. He isn't listening. He isn't answering. He isn't going to answer. That's how it's going to feel in that moment. And here's how you respond based on faith rather than feelings in the middle of those circumstances when you say, but what are the facts of the situation? The facts are, I know from the Word of God and I know from experience, God loves me. God cares. God listens every time that I pray. God answers when I call out to Him. God is committed to care for His children. I, I know for a fact that I've seen a lot of things in the world, but I've never seen God's children starving or begging for bread. So I know for a fact God will provide. God will come through. God will be faithful. I will see God's purposes prevail in this. Those are the facts. That's what faith does. And if you want to keep a healthy perspective in the worst of times, you make a conscious choice to say, I already know what I'm feeling, but what does the Word of God say are the facts of the situation? That's what faith does. Third and final thing that I'll say is when Jesus shows up in your city and in your life, He offers you a Hosanna moment. He offers you a, a Hosanna experience. And that may sound like a weird statement. Let me clarify what we mean by that. The crowd shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna to the Son of David when Jesus came to town. That term has been used a lot of different ways. It's been sort of, the meaning has shifted a lot today so that we just use it as a, a term of praise or adoration. And it fits because the term meant originally, save us. It was a compound word that literally, to be exact, meant save us from this crushing weight. Well, over time, the way that that was used got morphed, that it, it became a declaration that somebody was a savior. So it was like, it was almost even then a shout of praise, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us from this crushing weight. By that, that cry, we are declaring we believe you to be the savior. We believe that you could be the one to take this crushing weight off of us. Just a couple of things that I'll say about that. First of all, Jesus, he wants in your situation to give you relief from the crushing weight that you feel and he understands. You know, on that Thursday night when the suffering really began, Thursday night of Holy Week, Jesus has gone to the garden and he knows it's all coming to a head that night. And he's going to pray for strength as he's about to face the unthinkable. He's taken 
the eleven disciples with him, and he goes in to pray. And it says in Matthew twenty six thirty eight that Jesus told them, "My soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me." He was so crushed with not only the thought of what was before him, but he is beginning now to take on himself what his whole mission has called him to do, and that is to take on the weight, the guilt the shame and the judgment that our sins deserve. I want to ask you to do something uncomfortable for just a moment. I want you for just a moment to conjure up your biggest shame story. What is it, and trust me, we will never ask you to say this out loud, but what is it that you have done, that you've said, that you've participated in, that you are most ashamed of? I'm not going to beat you up over this. I just want you to I want you to get that up in your head. What are you most ashamed of? For most of us, if you're like me, even the recollection of that almost causes your brain to short circuit. Like I don't even want to complete that thought. I'm so embarrassed and ashamed that I ever did that. Okay, you got that. For some of us, it's tough because we're like there are several candidates for most shameful moment. Okay, take all of that stuff and roll it together and how yucky it makes you feel. And now multiply that times everybody in this room because everybody here has got some bad shame stories starting with the preacher. Take all of the weight of that, roll it together. Consider how much yuck there is in this room. Now add in everybody else in this country and around the globe. All of our shame stories and now add in all of humanity and all of history. Jesus began to feel the weight of all of that sin. He took it on as if it were his. Do you begin to appreciate why his body was so crushed and stressed that his capillaries began to rupture all over his body and he began to sweat blood? Satan was trying to kill him before he could ever get to the cross as he began to to feel the weight of our sin. He knows what it is to be hard-pressed to the point of being crushed. In fact, it was so bad that God the Father in that moment dispatched angels. He saw that Lucifer wanted to kill Jesus before he could make it to the cross. And he said, go, give him what he needs now. And angels showed up on the spot. We don't know what they did, but something significant happened to make sure Jesus had what it would take to get through the next 18 hours or so. And oh, by the way, he'll do the same for you and me. Because Jesus, when he shows up, he doesn't, his presence doesn't mean that you won't pass through a very painful, difficult hour or day or week or year. But it does mean that he will dispatch whatever is needed to relieve you from the crushing weight enough to get through it. I heard a colleague share a story another pastor that that just I'm going to steal his story because it fits the situation so well and I could so easily see myself doing something this stupid he he was not an RVer I came from an RVing family he he was not but he had a good friend who insisted when it was his vacation time you take your family and take my big RV and you go travel the country and go see your family like you always do you just take my RV so he's sort of you know, a little afraid, says, okay, I'll do it. And he takes this big, long RV, and he's traveling the country, and he shows up, I think it's in Arkansas, where his in-laws live. 
And he gets there. And if you've never driven an RV, I have. And, and boy, the first few times you drive one, it is a scary thing. You know, there ought to be some training required for that. It's a big rig. He's driving and it's got a big hitch added on the back of it that you can tow a vehicle with. And he said he gets to his in-law's house and they live on a house that's just right there on a two-lane highway. And he said they've got a steep driveway and he's driving this huge rig. And he, he looks at that hill and he's like, man, I better hit that thing hard. So rather than easing into it, he just swings wide and whips it in and kind of guns it to get up there. And he gets a good start until he hears this awful grinding sound that I have heard before. Some of you know what it is. The the hitch has dug in. And instead of whipping all the way up that driveway, he gets about halfway up and then just comes to literally a grinding halt. He guns it another time or two and hears, but nothing's happening. And he opens the door and he looks out and realizes, you, you know where this is going. His rear wheels are no longer touching asphalt or concrete. He has whipped that thing in so hard that his front wheels are on the driveway and his hitch is still in the highway and nothing else is touching the ground. And his rear wheels are just spinning. But he's blocking now because he swung wide. He's blocking both lanes of traffic on a highway. And so as I would be in that situation, he's in a panic. He's like, what am I going to do? I got to I got to get this fixed. I got it fixed fast. And he's back there. He's like, it's the hitch. It's that stupid hitch. If it weren't on there, I think the wheels would be on the ground and I could go. So he's like, I, I got to get that hitch off. I've got it. And so he, he, he finds some tools real quick and he, he gets underneath the thing. He's not trying to pull out the insert. He's going underneath where it's attached to the chassis. And so he gets a big wrench and he's underneath and he's, he's fighting. He's got four bolts and he works and works and works and he finally gets one bolt loose and traffic's backing up worse. And he's like, I've got to get this loose. He's sweating now. Whole family standing out watching him and he gets on the second bolt and he's just, he's working. And finally he breaks the second one loose and he, you know, he's thinking he might actually get there and, and he's like really having a hard time on the third one and so uh, some of the traffic you know people are just getting out and watching and a guy comes up and goes hey man i got a giant wrench just for situations like this i'll get it for him. he's like please do and so now he gets this really big wrench and he's underneath it all now and he's on the third one and he's about to break it loose and he he's like i've only got one more to go and this thing will come loose and what's holding it up will will be gone and he says you know, never in that am I thinking about anything other getting these four bolts loose. And he said, as I'm as I'm cranking that third one loose and I go to take a deep breath. And he said, I realized all of a sudden I can't take a breath. And he for the first time took his eyes off the bolts and realized that the engine, it was a rear pusher. The engine was on his chest and that he could no longer take a deep breath. And as he looked Back, he saw what had happened. The hitch, because so many thousands of pounds of weight were on that hitch, had now penetrated the asphalt and was burrowing a hole into the ground. And the full weight of that RV was coming down on his chest. And at the last possible moment, he realized what an idiot he had been. And at the last instant, was able to exhale and shove himself out from under the engine and roll out and escape being crushed by the weight of that thing. Now, thankfully, they were able to get some professional help and, you know, eventually get that whole thing undone. But I share that story with you just to say that picture of this poor pastor in a panic because he's in a bind and he's got to fix the situation. And he's so fixed, fixated on his solution to the situation that he overlooks the fact that he has put himself in a situation to be completely crushed 
by the weight of it all. Friends, that picture is a flesh and blood example of what a lot of us will do. We'll get into a difficult situation, a situation that that really matters and that's weighty. And we make the mistake of thinking that it is our job to fix it. And we get so busy focusing on what we've got to do to fix the people and fix the situation and make it all work out. And and we get so dialed into what we've got to do that we forget that we don't have the strength to fix this. And in the middle of us trying to fix it, we can just be crushed. Some of you are feeling the crushing weight of a marriage that's a mess that you can't fix. Some of you are feeling the crushing weight of a financial mess that you can't remedy. Some of you are feeling the crushing weight of a physical condition that you can't fix. Some of you are feeling the crushing weight of a situation with your kids that you think that you can fix and you can't, but the weight of you trying is about to crush you. And Jesus wants to come into your situation and free you from the crushing weight. That's what Hosanna means. To be freed from a crushing weight. Jesus wants to give you a Hosanna moment. And in doing that, He wants to give you room to breathe and rest. Jesus said, and this is what Jesus is about. He said, come to me all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and let me teach you because I'm humble and gentle at heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear and the burden that I give is light. For some who have been in a difficult situation and who maybe have felt like God isn't listening, God doesn't care, God isn't doing anything, I promise you, He's listening, He cares, and He wants not only to be the one to bear that crushing weight, He doesn't want to put more on you. This is the grace that He offers. He wants to give you rest. He wants to give you room to breathe and have life again. But here's the defining thing. You've got to be willing to invite Jesus into your situation. You've got to be willing to say, however you want to do it, I want you, Jesus, to be Lord here. You know, Jesus, in the midst of his crushing situation, we hear just how bad it was when it says that he went a little farther. He bowed his face to the ground praying, Father, if it's possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. That's the place that we've got to come to. And saying, Jesus, I, you know, I, I want relief. There are some specific things I want. I've told you the things that I want, but here's what I want above anything else. I want you and your plan. I want your will. I want your presence. I want your way. And I'm inviting you to come in and have your way in me. I'm telling you, this isn't preacher talk. This is real life. Jesus is real. And He does care. And whether you feel it or not, He has paid careful attention to what you're going through. And if you ask Him, He will come into your situation. I don't know what He'll do. But I do know this. He is, he is the Savior who responds to the call of Hosanna. He will come. And He'll lift that crushing weight to the extent that you can get your breath and that you can press on. He wants to be the one to carry the load, if you'll let him. Would you bow together with me as we pray? Those of you watching online, would you bow in prayer with me? Father, I pray 
that by the, the personal work of your Holy Spirit, that you would speak into each one of our lives and, and that you would put your finger on the areas where we have struggled and hurt and felt such a heavy weight. I pray, God, that you would pour into us a faith to believe you, to carry us and to carry the heavy weight that presses in on us. For some who have been overwhelmed by relationships, by circumstances that are just too much for them to bear, I pray that today they could experience the truth of your word, that we can cast all of our cares, all of our weights and anxieties on you because you care for us. I want to invite you just in your heart. Would you, whatever it is that weighs most heavily on you, would you just take that situation and just, I just want to invite you to just put your hands together with your eyes closed and just like you have a, a heavy rock in your hand, would you just extend that out before you and just say, Lord, whatever this thing is, this relationship, this bind, this weight, I give it to you, God. I'm trusting you with that. I release it to you. Hosanna. Hosanna to you, Lord Jesus, the God who saves us from the crushing weight. Would you take that weight today? Maybe today you've come and you don't know Christ as your personal Savior. He wants today to take the weight of your sin and of your future on His shoulders. Would you just today say, Jesus, I trust you. I believe you died for me and rose again. And I'm asking you to take the crushing weight of my sin to forgive me and set me free. Lord Jesus, thank you for hearing and answering us because you're good and you're faithful. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.